You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Barman Williams and we're back with The Small Print and today our guest is Charles Savage. And always to start with, we ask you to please introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced. CEO of Purple Group and founder of Easy Equities. So can you tell us a bit more about what you do for those of particularly people not in South Africa that don't know about Easy Equities and Purple Group and the incredible work that you've been doing? Look, in a, in a nutshell, we're, our mission is to democratize all things investing. And in essence, we've started with the most obvious asset class, which is listed equity. Um, more recently, we've bridged out into unlisted property space, uh, but in the future, really, to enable all access to all asset classes and make it simple and easy for everyone to participate in the ownership economy. Okay, so to start with a slightly trickier question, how does your business differ from Robinhood and what's going on with the world of meme and mimetic stocks at the moment? <laughs> Look, I think you know there's some key differences. Firstly, we're an investment platform, um, and I think Robinhood is more of a trading platform. And you can see that in the construct of their product set and even just in the platform. You know, the platform encourages things like leverage. It encourages access to things like options, which are not typical investment-friendly tools. Uh, our platform doesn't have any of that in it. It's only equities. There's no leverage in the platform. There are no options or derivative products in it. And then I think the other key difference is that Robinhood are targeting a much more sophisticated investor base. Uh, so if you like, they're taking a land grab from existing brokers whilst also building a new generation of traders our key and core focus is on the first-time investor. So we are much happier in enabling uh, a, new, uh, a new group of investors rather than trying to win traders away from existing brokerages. Okay, great. So talk to me a bit more about those new investors that you refer to. And you use words like democratizing finance, which I know tends to start to raise a few eyebrows today because quite often we talk about democratizing access. A lot of businesses that are involved with the sort of new world of tech and finance, when they talk about democratizing, they're really talking about democratizing access rather than democratizing ownership. And there is rightly, I certainly believe, a lot of criticism that comes out of those sorts of platform-based businesses that give access, but at the same time actually reduce ownership over core assets. I mean, this is basically the model of the software as a service business world that we live in right now, where you can have anything you like on a sort of timeshare basis, as long as you're prepared to pay your rents to the owners of all the various different platforms. So would you mind interrogating your version of the, the word democratize and what it is you really are talking about there when you're getting new people, new investors, as you say, involved in the stock market? Yeah, look, I think just as a starting point, the demand to own stocks has always been there. So, you know, I've been in the industry for over 20 years now, and it doesn't matter where I find myself or what conversations uh, uh, I find myself in. When I ask, and what demographic I'm talking to, when I ask the simple question, do you want to own shares or stocks? The answer always is yes. And then you say, well, why don't you? And then the excuses start to start. You know, it's too, I don't understand it. Uh, it's too expensive. I don't trust it. There's a whole lot of, you know, excuses. So for us, the demand has always been there. And it's really been, in order to democratize access, we've had to try and understand these friction points that are stopping people from fulfilling their requirements to own stocks. And it's a, you know, it's a laser sharp focus on identifying those friction points and then solving them in our platform approach without 
changing the ownership structures that are that are already available in the market. So you know we're not saying you're not renting shares. These aren't shares for hire. These are real shares, real stocks, uh, real ownership, but eliminating all of those friction points. And you know for us it came down to to at the start two key kind of friction points and two pillars that we built our democratization efforts around. The first was that when we looked at the industry, it layers itself with minimums. So it doesn't matter where you find yourself, whether it's in asset management and you know, or in stockbroking. In order to participate, you had to have a minimum capital balance. You had to pay a minimum monthly fee. You had to pay things like minimum brokerage, minimum monthly contributions. And if you stack all those minimums up, you actually exclude about 98% of the market opportunity. So for us, first big barrier was eliminate minimums um, wherever we can. And that led us to an incredible innovation, which was fractionalization of shares, because in fact, some of these minimums, you can't have, you've got no control over. So if you want to own Amazon, you know, it's a $3,000 stock. And so what we did is we fractionalized shares and, and in South Africa, we've patented and copyright that. And funny enough, we were the first in the world to fractionalize shares. And today it's part of the DNA of every single one of these platform democratization business models. So that was a sort of core dedication to eliminating minimums. And then the second area is that the industry layers itself in a language and a dialogue that is intimidating. Um, and it, you know, you can think about it. You know, go back thirty years. This happened in smoke-filled, you know, cigar rooms, and brokers talking to brokers. So you know, sophisticated individuals talking to sophisticated individuals. The problem is that when the internet came around, we didn't retail the language. We didn't make it friendly and accessible. What we did instead is we protected ourselves, our, in the industry participants, uh, and our jobs by making it look more sophisticated or more complicated than it needed to be. And that's at every level within the industry. So we, we've got a, a dedicated task team that are looking to simplify these concepts, make them tangible for the man in the street. And that extends all the way through to our platform capability where you know, it would be a really bad choice of brand name, Easy Equities, if you arrive at a really sophisticated, complex trading system. And it's not. You know, when you when you invest through Easy Equities, it's, it feels more like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. It feels more like an online e-commerce retail transaction than it does the cockpit of a Boeing. Um, and, you know, traditional trading looks like the cockpit of a Boeing. You know, there's, there's red and green and graphs and charts, and there's a whole lot of stuff going on and multiple screens. And at any point, you sort of feel, if I touch that, maybe we'll, we'll crash the plane. So we've, we've, as far as we can, or as far to date, we've tried to eliminate and make things easy uh, and simple for the, for the man in the street. And I think, you know, we're led by, by Warren Buffett in this regard. I mean, he, he's famous for saying that his biggest investment mistake was that he started too late. I mean, he was 11. And just think about the sophistication that, he, that uh, was available all around him as an 11-year-old. And so for us, we actually focus our platform interface on delivering financial services to 11-year-olds. And if they can't do it, then it's a good analogy for us because actually in our investment journey, all of us are just 11-year-olds. You know, we've, we've started too late. Uh, we're only getting to grips with it much later in our careers. Fantastic. So 
I, when I was working in the financial industry in around about sort of 2011, there were only 300,000 odd active retail investors in South Africa, which is, which is so small. I mean, we're talking about a population that's almost 58, maybe even more than 58 million people here, depending on how accurate our sort of statistics really are about our population. But less than 400,000 individuals were directly invested in the JSE. By the time I left that industry in around 2016, 2017, there were still only 300 odd thousand active retail investors on the JSE. What has happened since then? What success have you had in actually democratizing access and ownership to shares with your platform? Because I know you have some interesting stories to tell there that are perhaps indicating that real change is finally happening rather than just change between who is invested, but is to actually broadening that base of people that have a direct stake in the future of the South African economy. Do you have any good news in terms of that trend since then over the last sort of five years or so? Yeah, and, and, and Bronwyn, you're touching on really the kind of fulcrum point for me in my career was this frustration with the pie never getting bigger. I mean, being in stockbroking for as long as I have, you know, we all dreamt of this rapid growth, acceleration in ownership. And going back to when I started back in 2000, and it's never happened and we've got lots of excuses, but fundamentally we've got ourselves to blame because the demand's always been there. So there is great news. I mean, we've just reached a million account holders. Uh, of those participants, we've got, um, we've got 470,000 active investors. So we've doubled the size of the retail market, more than doubled it. Uh, you know, That's more, astonishing. Almost. That's a really impressive statistic. <laughs> yeah, and what I love about it is that they're managing somewhere around 660,000 accounts. So because, as you'll know, but for the listeners, we don't just offer access to South African markets. We also offer access to U.S. markets and Australian markets. So on average, each investor is managing about one and a half accounts. So not only are we democratizing and growing ownership of our local economy and shares, we're also growing access to international opportunities for South Africans and the rest of the world soon. So, you know, some great numbers. I mean, it, it does still feel like we're just getting started, though. You know, the, the first million customers took us just six and a half, took us six and a half years. At the current monthly growth rates, the next million will take us 12 months. So, yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about uh, an exponential business model like ours. Like that first million is a, is a study in patience. Um, and resilience, but the next million comes at you so fast that actually all of the effort is in scaling and stability and keeping up with your consumer base, which is where we find ourselves now, which is what a privilege to be you know, part of this. So let's talk about that million and that next million. Where are these people coming from? Are they the same sort of faces, the sort of pale, male, frail demographic? <laughs> or have you been successful in broadening not just the numbers, but also the types of people that are having ownership in the South African economy. Yeah, when you were describing pale male, I just thought of myself. So they don't look anything like me. That's the really good news. I mean, the demographic is, uh, is exactly the fabric of South Africa, which I think this is the thing that uh, I'm the most proud about what we're doing. Um, so the average age of our investors is 31. When we started six years ago, it was 35. So we were very happy at 35 and we thought, look, if we can keep it 35, that'd be great. But what we found is that as the business grows, our audience is getting younger every year. So last year, as an example, we, the average age of onboarded customers, 29. And you know, we wanna keep shifting this needle towards younger and younger in investors. 
So, but that is very different from the traditional financial services. On average, a stockbroking or investment broke, uh, account in South Africa is 55 years old, white male. So ours is 31 years old for starters. Secondly, and I was looking at the data just before we started, we've just breached 60-40 male, female. So women now make up 41% of our investors and men just, just 59%. And again, when we started six years ago, that was 85-15. So we've made huge advances in balancing the gender uh, bias. And interestingly now, women are taking up investing faster than men on the platform. And that's been a concerted effort of ours. If you look at our brand team, it's dominated by powerful, uh, expressive women. Um, and that's, you know, that's driving the engagement with our, our consumer base. Um, the average amount of money that they're investing is also an interesting stat is because this is a young generation, they haven't or they haven't inherited their wealth or the start of their career. They're managing on average about 40,000 Rand uh, per investor. So this is right at the start of their kind of investment journey. But it is radically different from any of our peer groups. There isn't another financial services company in this country that can stand up and say the things that I've just said about our customer base. And, you know, our goal or my dream is to, or our dream, is to have more sub-21 year olds on our platform than any other age group. Because as you know, you know, the real magic in investing is time. It's not what you buy and sell. It's that you do it for a long period of time. And so we've got a lot more to do to get that 31 average down to below 21. Uh, and we'll get there. You know, we've got, we've got a lot of work to do in that regard. Can you talk to stickiness of the investors you're bringing onto the platform? Do they buy something once and disappear? Is that million odd that you've got on your base is the same faces that stick around for the long time? Or do you have a lot of churn going on? Are people getting the benefits of that compounding that you mentioned right there? Yeah, geez. You know, again, like I want to go back to what stockbroking looked like before Easy Equities. So when we modeled the business, we looked at what would, if we get these investors, what will they do? And on average, the average stockbroking account pitches up like three or four times a year. So the engagement rate is very low. And, uh, and the same applies to asset managers. So if you've, if you've got a unit trust managed by Alan Gray, then you would pitch up sort of one to two times a year. And it's interesting how the industry actually discouraged you from pitching up. They put barriers. I mean, you, you, I can't think of an investment platform that makes it easy for you to see what your returns are, what your holdings are, etc. And it was almost as if, if you pitched up and saw the results, we, they believed that you would behave badly. So when we unveiled this, we were, well, look, we don't think we're going to change behavior that radically. Uh, we think people pitch up three to four times a year. The truth is they pitch up 10 times a month. So they're, they're in there every two to three days. And... The other thing that we, we, we didn't have a strategy for but uh, has radically changed the engagement is because we've abandoned minimums, there's no excuse not to make an investment. So people are putting away little amounts of money all the time when it comes to them. So, you know, for example, they'll save 50 Rand in a week because they didn't buy coffee or they'll save 500 Rand this month because they renegotiated their insurance. And when that saving happens, they then pitch up and make a deposit. So the other thing that's happening is that on average, they make 10 deposits a year, which is also not normal for, uh, for the investment community. So the engagement rate is off the charts. The behavior that we're seeing is that they are predominantly buy and hold. So less than 5% we would classify as traders. And it's, you know, that, that 5% is 
typical of the industry. About 5% of people who open a stockbroking account go on to be traders and not investors. Um, but the key thing that we, we're not sure about is that trading behavior has emerged in the COVID environment. And you can just you can understand that COVID could turn an investor into a trader. I mean, the volatility over the last 12 months has been extraordinary. With volatility comes opportunity, uncertainty, and with all those kind of things comes the people start to, if you like, trade more. But in the outcomes, what the group, this whole Easy Equities group, have produced in terms of return is above benchmark returns. So the average of all returns on the platform is greater than the indices that they're you know, trying to beat. So the Aussie 40 in the South African context, S&P 500 in the US, which places this novice investment group in the top 10 asset managers in the country. They're in the top you know, 10% of asset managers as a group. So the outcomes are extraordinary. On average, they pitch up and add 12 to 15% per year to their portfolio in cash. And then they obviously get the, the, the rest of their growth out of their investment returns. Um, but it's, like, it's almost as if they're creating nest eggs for themselves. And these are their most guarded assets because the outflows are tiny. So the churn rate is like negligible. I mean, as somebody um, who's looked, I've looked at lots of other businesses and been in you know, venture capital uh, on a startup. The lifetime value of a customer is something everyone wants to talk about. And people say, well, what's your lifetime value of my customer? So I don't know. I don't know when they're going to die. Because it's literally, that's how positive um, the growth is in this customer behavior. There is almost zero churn rate or people leaving. And they are, their assets continue to grow. So if we keep you know, doing what we're doing and we keep our customers satisfied, then we're going to have an extraordinary long journey with them. Because you know people aren't living... Till 60 anymore and people are also living and working much longer and so if we get it right who knows they'll certainly be still on the platform long after i'm gone yeah that's a very good point but i'm glad that you touched on the fact that people are making money and not losing their shirts on the platform because i don't want to get into that but if you are saying that you're at least sort of making benchmark on average then that would show that perhaps this is something that could actually be used to grow wealth for more people over the long term which is what i really wanted to get into with you today the whole concept of ownership and why ownership is important to growing an economy, particularly a developing economy like a market like South Africa or really any of the sort of African markets across the continent or across the global south, I mean, you want to sort of carve up the global pie. There is definitely yeah. a sense from my perspective that as individuals, as citizens, as consumers, as investors, we kind of have two choices when we're sitting in a fragile economy, like an economy like South Africa, where we have a choice to take our money out of that economy if we feel scared and frightened and put it into offshore accounts, invest in offshore businesses, offshore assets in order to hedge against the potential risks or potential demise or breakdown of our economies, or we have the choice to invest in them, to get our own stake, whether we're owning a piece of land or whether we're owning a stake in a company. And those two choices both become very self-fulfilling in that if more people don't have faith or have low expectations in their economies and choose to withhold their cash, their savings, their investment from the marketplace, or worse, take it offshore to use that capital allowance to take, that, take their bets elsewhere, that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy because it increases the odds of economic decline. It leaves, quite frankly, less money, less investment in that economy in which to grow and build it. Conversely, if people 
own something in their own economy, not only is there more investment available to grow that economy, those people all have a higher stake. They are literally more invested in the success of that future economy getting better in the long run. So whether your expectations are negative or positive tends to be quite a self-fulfilling prophecy. And a lot of economic models are preferenced on that. You know, like inflation mm. expectations have real world impact on the rates of returns of investments. So I think it's very, very important that platforms like yours do exist and that we are getting beyond that very, very small fraction of the population that was actually invested in our economies in order to build and grow that. But I think there where it becomes more interesting is the offerings that you have with regards to property ownership in particular, because ownership of a share or a business is still obviously a much more liquid asset than ownership in a piece of property or a piece of land. And this is where the expectation question becomes more interesting in that particularly in South Africa's context where we do have some questions around the future of property rights and where the listed property sector itself, whether you're looking at commercial property or residential property, has shown perhaps less than stellar returns and has some quite cloudy expectations ahead of it. I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on the general sort of premise that I've put out here today, but specifically with regards to how you see your property, your fractional property investment offering playing out in that context of reinforcing expectations and perhaps, you know, enforcing or, or increasing the odds of your investors in your platform actually making returns if you get more people invested in it. Yeah, what are your thoughts I, I, on those virtuous yeah, Bronwyn, vicious you, cycles? Yeah, you touch on, some, on so many points there. I mean, I think at the center of what you're saying is the creation of this ownership economy is going to have some understood outcomes that we can all, I think we can sort of wrap easily, but fundamentally the obvious one is this wealth creation, generational wealth creation, the start of generational wealth creation, which, you know, South Africa has been left behind. And, and that's, that's super exciting. And I think everyone can get their heads around what that could mean uh, for the future of the country, because more money creates more money, you know, self-prophesizing. I think it's the unintended consequences, the unexpected consequences of ownership that are, for me, just as interesting. And I, I'm going to reflect on what I've learned from owning stocks and what it's done to me. And I think that it's relevant to what it, would, what it potentially could do for the, the rest of, of the world or the rest of South Africa. The first thing is that I'm experiential in everything that I've learned. So I've always put myself in places where the people around me are much smarter, much better, so that I can learn and improve my skills over time. And if I bring that back to investing, the best, my best guides have been CEOs of listed companies. And my access point to them was through shares and ownership. So in Bezos, it was through Amazon. In South Africa, FNB, uh, Michael Jordan where, uh, was a big catalyst. So for me, the key, the kind of unexpected is that if we create this ownership economy, people are going to take more interest in the companies that they own. They're going to want to understand more about the direction and the strategies of this business. And there's going to be an explosion of education and understanding of how to run a business, how, you know, what strategy, what impact strategy has, and a whole lot of unexpected things that I think could create a new wave of entrepreneurs uh, in the country. And that's, for me, that's super exciting because you know the, the, the best access you've got to education is through shareholding. You know, it's, I, I feel like I've met Bezos 
15 times because I've read his investor letter 15 times and I feel like I'm part of Amazon's success, but I've leveraged his insights into my own business model on so many occasions. So that, that's an unexpected outcome for me. The other one is if, we, if you own a part of a company or part of the economy, part of a property, is there a potential for you to behave differently? And I think what you see in South Africa right now is a lack of ownership in the economy. I mean, and let's use like an extreme example. Let's use ESCOM, where there, you know, people are stealing the cables. If South Africa owned ESCOM, if that was, if the public sector said, let's privatize this and let's give it back to South Africans since we pay the taxes anyway, do you think that our behavior towards ESCOM might change? We would be, as, as shareholders, we'd be more active, we'd be more engaged, and we'd be voting. Uh, and directing the course of that business, but as shareholders, you know the the, lead, the the costs or ownership of that might change us. It might say that we, we might stop stealing the cables. In fact, we might protect the cables, and we might, you know, stop people um, connecting themselves illegally to the network. And I think that that behavioural change is also going to drive significant outcomes because if you think about a whole lot of millions of South Africans now taking up a part shareholding ownership in a company the best, the most loyal customers are going to be your shareholders. And, you know, being six years old um, with Easy Equities and, and having a listed company in Purple Group, that's the parent company, we've seen what this means for us. So we've, when we started Easy Equities, there were only 1,800 retail shareholders. Today, they're over 30,000. And we've looked at that cohort of shareholders and said, how do they behave differently from non-shareholders? So firstly, they protect the asset. They are the ones in social media uh, growing the business, referring it to their friends and family. They're the ones that if I get attacked in social media, they've got my back. They're like, hey, Charles is a good guy. He's doing this. His team is awesome. And it's like I've got this army of 30,000 people out there protecting and growing my business. And that, that wasn't an expected result. You know, it, it's just a result of this ownership economy. And I... That excites me about how we can change the landscape and change the behavior of South Africans to take apart ownership uh, in this economy. The key thing is, is that it can't start, and your point on easy properties is where I'm getting to, is sadly for South Africa, we've got 300 listed companies. They represent probably 25% of the economics of the country. You know, 75% of, of the economics of the country are held probably outside of those, those listed stocks. And so it's not going to give us enough access. We need to think about the other asset classes and enabling the same, disabling the same friction points and enabling the same ownership outcomes in other asset classes. And property came at us because our, we asked our customers very succinctly, what's missing? And tell us what we should do next. And they said to us, residential property. We thought it was going to be Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And funny enough, it was residential property. And as a 47-year-old white male, I didn't get it. Like, why? You can go out and buy a house tomorrow. What I was missing is that you can't. If you're a 25-year-old South African and you live in Santon, uh, work in Santon, you live in a faraway place from Santon, and the property that you want to own is unaffordable to you, and you can't get a stake in. You can't get a, a leg in on the ladder. So in understanding that, we created this platform to allow them to get a leg in, and it's such a, it's because of our history, it's such a, um, a emotive asset class. And 
regardless of the fact that there's a lot of political noise around around the ownership structures of property, for our investors, getting a stake in the game, get walking past a property that they now own and can say, hey, I bought part of that, is incredibly empowering for them. So, And there are other asset classes that we'll get to. I mean, venture capital is one that's really close to my heart. It's one that I think that the ecosystem in South Africa is, is broken. It's got better in the last, probably only last five years, but it's, it's a long way behind best in class. And if we're radically going to transform uh, the economy, we have to radically transform the way we raise money and share that capital um, with entrepreneurs. And I think we can do an incredible job at raising venture capital and creating an asset class in venture capital that allows the retail investor to be part of this. And if you think again, go back to my comments around Purple Group, imagine a startup with 30,000 shareholders and it's a retail business. And let's just say it's, it makes cool drinks, you know, something simple. It's got 30,000 customers from day one, just by virtue of that crowdfunding, because they have 30,000 fans who bought into the business model. Why wouldn't they buy, you know, the product too? So I'm super excited about getting us started on the venture capital road and democratizing access to that asset class. I mean, and I think that the important part about that is actually venture capital is such an elitist um, investment asset class. I mean, I've never invested in a venture capital. I've started businesses and raised money, but I've never invested in one because it's just inaccessible. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start in this country. So that's a good example of an asset class that if we democratize, I think will have incredible power uh, in radically transforming the economy. I think there's some interesting plays that are coming out now as well. I mean, power production and the democratization of power production putting it in the hands of the consumer again, that's going to happen. You know, we've seen governments moves on that. And I think that the, the power generation that we're going to own as retail investors is going to be clean energy because we're not interested in, you know, coal fired anymore. And we're going to vote with our money by, you know, investing in wind plants and solar plants and clean energy initiatives. And so for us, we're already thinking about, well, how do we fractionize access to solar and to wind power? Um, so that you can literally, you know, you won't feel bad about paying for your power because you're a shareholder and you get dividends on the other end of it. And so for me, this, you know, the, what we're seeing is the, is the disintermediation of institutional access and control. We're taking the same asset classes, but we're giving them to the people that actually make the difference, uh, whose capital is provided, whose behavior will drive the outcomes and success and failure of those businesses. And I think if we get that right, then, you know, I, uh, and I, we will get it right. I think uh, we, none of us will be able to predict where it's going to take us as a country, but it can only take us much faster towards where we need to go than the current trajectory than we, that we're on. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're really saying there is that ownership changes all the incentives. And we know if you change the incentives, you can get very, very different outcomes. Because what ownership in businesses does is it stops pitting the citizen against corporate. It stops creating enemy classes between the sort of extractive class that sort of takes other people's money and the class that sort of has to hand it over. It puts people on the same side. So it's good for a nation building perspective too. But I think it's also interesting sort of incentive structure that changes when it comes to the issue of property rights, which we touched on. Because why should you care about property rights if you don't own any property? I mean, it makes no sense to support property rights that essentially exclude you from the marketplace. However, if you do have 
ownership of really any property, your position around those sorts of rights and policies does shift quite dramatically because as soon as you have something to lose, you're going to act in quite a different way when you see other people that have things that you don't have. So it's kind of getting people on the same page and getting incentives aligned so that more of society can work together and less work apart. So it's creating interclass alliances, which is also quite interesting, not just a sort of interracial question, which is obviously quite big for South Africa. So that was the other thing that I wanted to get into with you today. And that's the whole question around what's happening on the policy front around a lot of the policy uncertainty and how that is affecting ownership and your business in general, because your business touches on commercial share ownership and on property ownership, which are quite controversial sort of spaces at the moment and things that are under attack from creating quite a lot of those sort of enemy cohorts between the public sector and the private sector, between governments, between private interests, etc. What are the things that you are concerned about in terms of your mission of trying to democratize ownership and access to opportunity and growth and investment when it comes to the policy uncertainty in South Africa, particularly around property rights and also around some of the more sort of onerous restrictions that are coming on board for companies that are going to start to impact some of the profitability of companies? Because as I said, there is quite a large sense in South Africa that corporate or commercial or monopoly capital is sort of an enemy of the people. So policy is sort of pandering towards sort of increasing those divides rather than bringing them closer together, which is what ownership could do. We do know that, of course, policy uncertainty has a direct impact on investability, on the desirability to get involved in a marketplace does require some sort of a level playing field rules or sort of the, the, the base upon which any sort of economic growth or any investment needs to be built. Do you have any concerns around policy uncertainty? Are you a bit more of an optimist when it comes to the direct impact that's going to have on your actual service offering to your clients? Yeah, look, I think it 100% has an impact on where customers place their capital. The, we find ourselves in a position where that doesn't matter. You know, as South Africans, we want our customers to buy more South African equities. Those that are like us who are staying and are optimistic about the future, that that's what we want. But we, we don't control that and we're not the gatekeepers to what they do with their money. In fact, we just think we're actually opening the gates to allow them to invest wherever they want to. And so you can see the impact of policy decisions in the capital flows that are happening on our platform, live and real. You know, you'll, you'll see it in money being sent to the US or to Australia. You'll see it in investable opportunities. So let's take property. You know, prop, bad property policy decisions will mean we'll sell more property in the US to South Africans than they're buying in South Africa. So it's for us, it's very live and real. The impact on us is, well, we do, our job is to make sure that, we, that whatever investment opportunities our customers want access to globally, we enable it. So, but as South Africans, we wear the badge to say, well, guys, this is the impact of these decisions. Here it's live. This is not a, this is not a, a study in studies. This is fact-based evidence of what retail investors are doing, and they, they're voting with their own capital. And I think, you know, to a large extent, our customers are optimistic South Africans who believe that the future in South Africa is worth staying for. But despite that, you can see policy decisions impacting on their own capital flows. And that uncertainty obviously 
forces them or uh, to, to make to take those investments elsewhere. And it's a it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. You know, there's no doubt that the greater the uncertainty, the less capital it will attract. And I think for South Africans' perspective, the dialogue, the political dialogue, has always been: what do we need to do to attract institutional money? Because that's the real big money play. But I think there's a second leg that, to that: is how do we keep the capital that's here ready? How do we encourage South Africans to stay? And how do we ensure that we don't put a policy framework that doesn't just scare away institutional investors, but scares away the most optimistic uh, South African? So we see it play out. What's con- it, it, so it doesn't concern me from a platform perspective, but it, it concerns me as a staying South African um, that these pol- policy frameworks will, will take the most optimistic of capital and move it offshore. And I think the thing that South Africa has to let go of is we're not an island. The, you know, it's not people have can vote and move their capital freely. Exchange control for the retail investor is all for all intents and purposes gone. You know, who's got five million or ten? What's a ten million a year now? Who's got ten million a year? Very few people. Uh, 99.9% of the population don't. But in aggregate, they manage a lot of money. I mean, as an example, the total value of investment sitting on our platform is close to 30 billion rand now. That is huge, and that's all retail money. And if we continue to create policy that encourages them to take that money elsewhere, then that's what will happen because there are no gates stopping them from doing that. I mean, the split currently on South Africa versus uh, U.S. is about 10% is sitting in U.S. So 3 billion Rand versus 27 odd billion in South Africa, which is lower than I would have expected. You know, if you look again at the asset management industry, they're sort of 60-40 now. 60% locally invested, 40% uh, internationally invested. So the retail investor is saying they're comfortable with um, the current policy framework, but they're cautiously optimistic that, it, that uh, it's, going to, it's going to be a good investment cycle or a good period to be invested in South Africa. And I think government has to watch closely. You know, they've got to stop just thinking about attracting capital. They've also got to think about protecting the capital flows. The things that, from our perspective, like policy decision, over-regulation is a real, it's a real problem. You know, if you want to democratize anything, you want to provide low-cost, easy access, then an overburdened regulatory framework will undo any good that you can do. And it's also, it discourages startup kind of culture. You know, it, it startups, there are three or four people, do you think, and, and just think about just employment. You know, if you want to start a startup, and you've got a five-man team, uh, and one of those individuals is not performing, that's 25% of your workforce. Our current employment framework and governance and controls makes it almost impossible for you to exit that person within a reasonable time frame for a startup. And so we've got to think about as a country, where do we, want, where do we need the economic activity to be start growing? Um, and we're not going to win if the focus is if legislation is targeting the big institutional employers, um, because at the, it's at the detriment of the startup business. It's it, those same rules are being applied to me with a hundred staff than versus Sassel with thirty thousand staff, and the two are very different beasts. So I think policy framework has to consider where they want, what are they trying to protect, and what are the unintended consequences of protecting that, uh, because. From my, from what I've seen, there is a, there is a, they're striving for over-regulation, 
and they're really trying to protect the little guy from the big guy. But that's going to end up meaning that we're too scared to start creating more little guys because you know the policy framework is the same. So that concerns me enormously. Like there's just this this regulation after regulation after regulation, and there is no framework that says, "Hey, start up until you reach 100 employees, you can hire fire as you like." You know, you can um, your capital uh, costs are lower. So you know, we're going to encourage banks to lend you money at a lower rate than what they would lend. We're going to give you tax incentives uh, and, and, and. And I don't see any of that policy framework because if we are going to ignite our economy, we need a policy framework that enables the little guy. And you know, my, the best example is Australia. You know, it's very socialist in its application of legislation, which I'm not a fan of. But I've never seen an economy that's so dominated by the SME. Um, you know, 85% of the economy is driven by small, medium-sized enterprise. That's polar opposite to what we see in South Africa. And when you look at the policy framework, you can see why. You know, it's an enabling environment that allows the little guy a chance to compete. And in fact, legislation is very heavily levied against the big monolithic kind of incumbents. And I think that's what South Africa needs to do. And I'm, I'm concerned that we're trying to protect um, ourselves from the big large organizations and it's going to be at the detriment of the smaller uh, entrepreneurial startup venture kind of uh, scene. Yeah, I'd almost like push back slightly on that in that our regulation is definitely skewed towards pitting the private sector or pitting business against employees rather than seeing them on the same side, rather than pitting small against large. So yeah. in other words, we're sort of tarring small businesses with the same brush as the, the big monopolists, which is, yeah. which is self-defeating because we've drawn the sort of the, the enemy lines in not the most productive ways. So when you're starting to put the, those that are, are working for someone against those who are paying their salaries, obviously you're creating unnecessary tensions. And I think in general, South Africa's policy framework is skewed towards almost, I hate to sort of use the term, but I can't think of a better word, a sort of a scarcity mindset rather than a growth mindset. So our regulation mm. is to protect employees against abuses by employers, against sort of regulatory there. And it's also skewed around redistribution rather than around growth. And of course, any conversation around redistribution or around regulation and sort of conflict management and small versus big, weak versus strong, all preferences, more conflict and less collaboration. And collaboration is obviously required for growth, which is where the ownership incentive, I think, is so interesting because by having people have a have a share in both the upside and the downside together, it doesn't really matter whether you are poor or whether you are rich or whether you come from an urban area or from a, from a rural area or whether you're an employee or an employer. If you have reciprocal skin in the game in terms of both the risk and the reward, in other words, we're not sort of putting all the risks into one person's hand and all the rewards into someone else's, you change the incentive and you change the whole structure towards being one more of collaboration and growth, which is obviously then reduces the requirements to have policies around conflict resolution, which is once again an inherently sort of scarcity orientated way of viewing the world. 
how do you think we can get governments on the same side as what you've done? Because you've been quite successful in bridging quite a lot of those divides and changing quite a lot of those incentives by the very dint of the fact that you've got a few million people on your platform right now, people that weren't previously invested, that were previously against the stock market and against monopoly capital. Now they're sort of part of that. You've already changed those relationships. You've put people on the same page. By getting employees to have an investment stake in the employer's business, you've put them on the same page. How do we get government onto the same page as that? Because you've shown there are ways that you can bridge some of those divides and you can get people pulling together rather than apart. And that does seem to be the sort of missing link in this equation. How do we yeah. get the public sector and the private sector seeing each other as allies rather than as enemies? Yeah, it's it's not easy because there's at the center of any partnership, you need trust. And I think we're probably operating at our lowest trust levels. So you know, as a starting point, we have to build bridges that we can trust each other again. And that's not easy because it's been you know, it's, if you you know add apartheid in the last two decades, we've been distrusting of each other for a very long time now, um, and that's manifesting in inability for for public and private partnerships to really uh, meaningfully make a difference. And there's no doubt that it's the right outcome. You know, public-private partnerships um, have to happen. It's you know, my previous uh, chairman Mark Barnes went and you know did his kind of military service at the at the post office, and you know that's what we need is we need we need the private skills to be part of the public turnaround. And we need to find a way, we need to find bridges that we can cross to do that. Um, and it, it needs to be something that happens urgently because if it doesn't, then the divide's going to keep on growing and then you're just going to find, you know, public is going to, uh, public enterprise is going to dissolve into nothing. And then what you're going to find is private enterprise are going to solve the problems and they're going to own those outcomes. Uh, for themselves, and, and PostNet is a great example. You know who who owns the delivery of mail in South Africa? It's not the post office anymore. You know what I mean? So that's what will happen if we don't find these bridges. And government have got enough case studies to realise that they don't have the skill sets to fix all of these things on their own. And so they have to willingly come back to the table and solve it. And maybe in SAA, you know, maybe in SAA we find a solution that can work. And I don't know the intricacies of the and the details of how that's going to work, but it. You know, it's a signal that government's not allergic to a public-private partnership model, and maybe SAA becomes, you know, the, the catalyst for it. Um, I think the other thing in what you were saying is just the regulators' regulation fundamentally is trying to protect us from the one percent of bad actors. And uh, you know, I use big and small, and that's not the right terminology. It's really that in any economy, you've got these kind of one percent of bad actors. And the problem is that 99% of us who are really good and honorable and want to make a difference have to live by the bad actor rules. So we are confined by those rules and it's almost a prison. It becomes a prison for us. And yes, there are less gates on our prison. But the bottom line is we, we've, I think the, the way to encourage growth is to be more penal on bad actors and to make sure that when you identify them that you, that you crucify them. And again, our our judicial system has let us down. It's let us down in public sector. It's let us down in private sector. I mean, how long is it going to take to put Steinoff culprits in jail? So the bad actors uh, get away with it. And what that means is that regulation is, is created, which we all, the good abiding citizens, have to live by. And I don't know how we solve that, but I think the only way to solve it is to be much more penal on the bad actors. 
Um, and you know, on the extreme, you've got China. We don't want to line people up and shoot them. Like you know, that's what they do. But it's probably pretty effective. And uh, you know, we've got to find a way where the judicial system has can is effective enough to be able to prosecute bad actors quickly, swiftly. Because then I think you can soften the regulatory environment, um, and people can you know operate more freely. But it's it's not. There's no simple solutions. Um, and you know, it's yeah. The free economy isn't as free as we would like it to be. Um, but yeah, it, go back to your government. You know, how do we build those bridges between government? It's going to need a standout case study. It's going to need a success story in post office or ESCOM or SAA or something where government goes, hey, you know, we invited pub- private sector in here. They didn't steal it. They enabled it. We grew it together. The sum of the parts is far greater than what we owned before. Um, and if we do that just successfully once, then I think we'll create a model uh, for that we can all trust in again and that public and private can come together. It's not that it hasn't been tried, but I think both sides of the equation have let each other down. You know, I think public sector, private sector businesses that have operated in the public sector, I mean, their record is tainted. That's, you know, can name... As many graph as you goes like. two ways, yes. <laughs> exactly, the graph goes two ways. So you know, it's not you can't, public sector can't sit there and throw stones at the public sector and vice versa. There needs to be like a, a TRC. So okay, guys, let's do this properly this time. But for the sake of the country, let's build some bridges and let's do something meaningful. And let's fix something together and use it as a case study to unite this country. It's like, you know, I love sport and how unifying it can be. And you win the World Cup. Um, despite all of our failures in our past, and, but we need to win the World Cup and uh, in just one sector, one industry. And if we do that, then I think that'll be the bridge that we can we can all trust in each other again and um, and you know, get on with it. Because this is not the, the the sad part is this is not difficult. You know, the the stuff we need to do as a country is not difficult. You know, I I travel a lot; it's a luxury. Um, but I also travel to places that are less fortunate. Than us. My favorite place in the whole world is Mozambique. And it's got incredible assets and resources. If somebody said to me, uh, we're going to give you a country and you're going to, you can turn that country into a business and run it, I'd take Mozambique. I'd just say, yeah, thanks, I'll take that one. Because you've got like base zero and everything you do will just add GDP. Um, and it's got such rich resources and assets. But every time I come back to South Africa uh, from Mozambique, I'm reminded how fortunate we are, how good our infrastructure still is, how world class it is. So we don't, I know that as South Africans, we look at it and we're pessimistic about the potholes and the governance structures and the judicial system. The fact that we have those things is a privilege. And I think we've also got to get context and stop with the excuses. Uh, you know, stop looking back and saying, well, the road was better 10 years ago. There's still a road. Let's walk it together. Let's understand where the, you know, the danger signs are and the pitfalls are. But let's walk it together and let's forge a different future because otherwise... We're going to be Mozambique, you know, in 20 or 30 years or worse in the case of Zimbabwe. Um, so we're very, we, we're in a very privileged position. And I think we must understand our privilege, accept our failings, both sides, public and private sector. And so let's just, let's start again. And let's create a new uh, model for public-private partnership. Because my experience is that both sides, 99% of both sides want the right thing. What we're allowing to happen is that the 1% is crowding out the 99%. And that's a very powerful you know, thought process. I honestly believe that 99% of the people that you meet 
in government and private sector are good, honest, honourable people who want to make a difference to society and want to build a better country. And yet, we're letting the 1% crowd us out. And all of us have to take that uh, our responsibility to say, I'm part of the 99% and I'm not going to let the 1% crowd me out. I'm going to turn state witness and I'm going to be the voice that stands against bad actors. Uh, and that's a, that for me is a, it's a responsibility we all need to uh, take on as citizens. And then we can turn this thing around together. It's not going to happen on its own though. Absolutely not. I love what you said there, to do it together, right? And I think the analogy that you had with sport is a great one because when our teams win, we all get to sort of share in that success because that national team represents all of us. But I think that comes back to the question of ownership again. If every South African was invested even in just a couple of rand into the JSE, when the market goes up, we can all celebrate together rather as it is right now when you've still got, even if you are having, as you're saying, a couple of million people on your platform, there's still a vast majority of South Africans that have no upside skin in the game for any economic success. And quite frankly, in that sort of environment, when the market goes up, the rich get richer and the poor get left behind. So there's a whole lot of people that are not happy when, when you get rich as an owner of a stock or as a business because it's essentially leaving them even further and further behind. So I think that whole thing of getting more people invested in the upside is definitely a, a really tangible way that we can start to see that corporates, businesses like yourself, can have a nation-building effect that goes far beyond just making the people that are listed on your platform that are buying and trading stocks a bit wealthier. It also has quite a quite deep sort of philosophical roots into into the future of sort of nation building through ownership, through having yeah. a stake as well as a say in what happens. And that's of course the other thing which we didn't really touch on today that owning a share gives you a say in how that company is run because that's what you do. You have ownership then, you're able to attend meetings. Like you say, you get to read the, the letter from Jeff Bezos and all the rest of it, but you also get then influence over the way that corporations are run, which is also something I think a lot of people that are not currently invested in these, in these sorts of shares feel they're left behind, feel that we're sort of at the mercy of corporates that are nudging society in a way that they don't necessarily want to go, that are making choices that are anti-poor or anti-particular special interest groups. By having an ownership, owning even a very small percentage, a very small share in a company, you have a say over how that company is run. You're able to have your influence seen. And that's something that I do like to talk about quite a lot too, that as citizens, we only get to vote every four years when the election cycle goes around and we get the municipal elections in between. I know, but that doesn't really change too much on a day-to-day -day basis. But as an investor, you get to invest or choose and to vote over the future of your country, because of course companies are part of that country on a daily basis. You get to choose whether to mm. buy more of that share or sell it and punish a company that's, that's doing things in a, in a behaving badly, as you say, behaving like that, that bad 1% of sort of psychopaths that we all know we have in our countries. It gives you a, so much more power over mm. your future if you have ownership in it. And unfortunately the way our world is structured we get more say over our ownership in private sector assets than we do in the way our country is run. Because as our sort of democracies, our party democracies are set up, we get to make a choice once every four years, then we sort of have to trust that things work out. But as owners, as shareholders, 
we get to influence the way society works on a much more frequent basis that gives us a bit more power which I think is also quite a big issue in countries like South Africa where particularly young people feel completely disenfranchised feel like you don't have a say over the way the world is going they don't have any influence to change that so I think that's also an interesting point when it comes to ownership it's not just about stock go up or number number go up to the up and to the left you know it's not about that at all it's about no. it's about a lot a lot deeper roots a lot more as you were saying a sort of second order effects and unintended consequences that come through there so yeah and I think coming... just to pick up on that Bronwyn just quickly because mm. um, you know if you think institutional money has voted predominantly to make them look good to their investors. So they, they, they profit ahead of purpose, if you like. Our experience of retail investors is it's purpose ahead of profit or, or profit not at the expense of purpose. And that's an interesting shift. And I, I've said this publicly, the future CEO is going to have to do retail presentations and he might not do the institutional ones because they will be the ones that control his destiny as CEO or for the group. I mean, go back to us an example, 27% of the company is owned by retail. In six years, that's happened. That means that they have negative control over the future of this business. So they're already in a driving seat. Play that forward 10 years and that'll be probably double that. And you can imagine it's happening in other companies. So you're 100% right that retail, the, the dialogue, the future CEO is going to be someone who has to be dialed into the retail DNA of his shareholders and their wants needs of the organization. Now, they are capitalist. They want a profit, but not at the extent of pur- not at the expense of purpose. So they want companies to make a meaningful profit by being good to the environment, by being good to their stakeholders, their people, um, by being good actors in the economy. And it's not profit at all costs. And we've done a lot of work at understanding this because it was a kind of unexpected consequence. The trader, if you like, doesn't care. The trader is a short-term animal. I want to make as much money as I can in the shortest period as possible. And I don't care what damage I create in that period or it doesn't matter to me. The investor is a very different animal um, and an exciting one that can navigate the change. Interestingly, the case study for Australia. So, so Australia is the second richest economy in the world uh, by, in, by um, per human capita. How did that happen? What's the case study? Telstra. Uh, over, I think it was 20 years ago, the government took what they were, were the equivalent of Telcom today and said it was a public asset. They said, we're going to privatize it. And in order to privatize it, what we're going to do is if you've got a stockbroking account, we'll send you shares. And so what did Australians do? They went out and opened stockbroking accounts and they all ended up being owners in their first shares. And they created this ownership mindset 20 years ago. And today, people are wondering, how did they rival Switzerland? What are, you know, they don't have the same legislative processes. They don't protect capital like they do in Switzerland. And, 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 and yet it's the second richest country in the world. And I, my bet is they created this ownership mindset, mindset and culture really early on. Um, and the unintended consequences of that well, are that they've created this incredibly wealthy nation. 
That's a really fantastic point. So I think that really drives home a lot of the points we've made today. We have come to the end of our hour. So I want to give you a last opportunity. If you've got any other closing thoughts that we haven't touched on or anything you want to clarify, please go ahead. But please also tell people where they can find you if you want to be found. Of course, you're welcome to, to stay as aloof or not as you prefer. <laughs> Look, they can find my businesses at uh, www.purplegroup.co.za and then from there you'll find Easy Equities and Emperor Asset Management all the other companies. But personally on Twitter at uh, Charles H. Savage. Um, and yeah, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter and enjoy the engagement and feedback. So no final comments from me other than to say thanks very much. Really enjoyed the discussion and the interest. And I think we could talk about this a lot more. I think what is going to be interesting is to reflect on some of the predictions we've made, and I'll make this prediction in the closing. We'll be 100% wrong about everything that we've predicted, except the moment, what we would have got wrong is that the impact of this is going to be far greater than we've ever expected. Perfect. Thanks so much, Charles. <laughs>